In my garage, I have a toy Noah's Ark. It's a plastic Noah's Ark uh, with little plastic people, a little plastic Noah and his wife, a number of little animals. Uh, it looks something like this. You may have one that kind of looks like this if you're a parent or if you've been a child in the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, many people have these little sets. They're fun to play with. Every kid likes animals and enjoys them. Uh, I even found on the internet this week that some people not only have little toys, they take it one step further. Uh, they have a Noah's Ark nursery. And so uh, you have your Noah's Ark quilt and bedding and there's a mural on the wall with happy animals. And it just, the whole thing is very festive and bright and enjoyable. Now, when we see these sort of toys and these sort of rooms, although they're fun and they're cute, we often forget that the story of Noah and the ark is actually not really a children's story at its heart. Uh, And the reason is this, that for every person on the ark, there were many, many more who were not. The animals here are smiling because they got on the ark. The ones that are not were not as happy. And so even as they are saved through the ark, there are many more who were not. The story of Noah and the ark, unfortunately, is one of destruction because of sin. It is a story of God's judgment upon the world because of how mankind has spiraled to the point of no return. And so we often talk about the ark itself, and we talk about the rainbow, things that I think we should discuss, but we often forget that all of that emerged out of an environment of terrible, terrible rebellion against God. And even in the midst of this story, we still see the grace of God. It's amazing because uh, we're often surprised by sin, right? We look around our world and we're surprised by sin that people are bad. So we look at our culture, we look at our country, we look at other countries and we go, man, people are evil. There is violence and sexual immorality and all kinds of evil surrounding us. And we're surprised by that when in reality, as we read the story of Noah, what we see is that all of that is to be expected. That ever since the fall of man, ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God, mankind has rebelled against God and incurred his judgment. What really should surprise us as we read the story of Noah is not sin, but grace. That even in the midst of this destruction and devastation, we have a God who keeps reaching and reaching and reaching to save his people. We have a God who says no situation is beyond repair. No situation is beyond redemption. Just to remind you a little bit of where we are in the flow of the book of Genesis. If you remember Genesis 3, we have the fall. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they introduce a curse on the ground, a curse on mankind. Their relationships with one another are uh, hurt, their relationship with God is separated, and now we live with sin. And we saw that last week as we talked through Genesis 4 and 5. Cain commits the first murder against his brother Abel. And then you have Lamech, who's just this man of violence. You look at me wrong, I will kill you. You hit me, I'll avenge you sevenfold. And the violence gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, right before the flood, we see that things have sunk to their lowest point. And sin and destruction are everywhere. And God has to step in and judge. But out of that judgment will emerge God's grace. It may be that 
in your life, you sit here this morning, you think my life is beyond repair. The things I have said or done, the mistakes I have made, God cannot redeem. My future is dark. My marriage is irreparable. My relationship with God is shattered. And what we'll see is that God can redeem any situation because he is powerful beyond anything you could imagine. And he is good beyond anything that you hope. And that's what we'll see in Genesis 6 through 9. So go with me for a moment. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So when we get to Genesis 6, here's what we see. It says the sons of God went into the daughters of man and they had children and you have the Nephilim who were these men of renown. Now, this is a tricky passage right out of the gate in Genesis 6. People debate, what are the sons of God? Uh, Who are these Nephilim? Unfortunately, I don't have time to go into all of it extensively this morning. So Brian and I will follow up on some of those specific issues uh, with a podcast later this week. But the impression you distinctly get from verses 1 through 5 is this, that mankind has heroes who are violent. That the leaders of their culture, these Nephilim, these are men of renown, these are famous men, and they are famous for their violence and their ruthlessness. You think about our culture, we have heroes who are famous for violence sometimes, don't we? So sometimes Jesse James from the Wild West is uh, exalted as this hero of the Old West, when in reality he was a mass murderer and a terrorist, responsible for the murder of 180-some people. And yet he's renowned for his violence. Uh, We produce movies like The Godfather in which you have a family that is renowned and powerful and prestigious because of their violence. This culture in Genesis 6 has gotten to the place where all of their heroes, all of their leaders are these big, strong men of violence. It says God looks at them and says, I'm not going to fight with these people forever. I will judge. His days will be 120 years, and then I'll judge. And we get to this place in verse 5 where it says, every thought of his heart is always evil continually. That's a pretty terrible thing to say about somebody. And yet, the Word of God says, for these men and women, everything they thought, everything they did was always evil continually. What Genesis 6 demonstrates to us right at the beginning is what happens when God allows mankind for an extended period of time just to make his own choices apart from the intervention of God so that after the fall, if God doesn't step in and change things, people get worse and worse and worse and worse. That's why sin should not surprise us, although it may dismay and upset us. This is where humanity spirals to. Yesterday, uh, my wife Shannon and I spent 
the afternoon weeding the flower beds in our yard, pulling up weed after weed after weed. And as we were doing it, I thought, I have no memory of planting these weeds. Yet here they are. Right? There was a weed in our yard that we left for another day that is over six feet tall. It's huge, and it just sprang up overnight. The stuff that looks pretty, you have to work hard at, and you have to cultivate. The ugly stuff just grows, doesn't it? If you're not vigilant about weeding the flower beds. Or think of it this way. What, ha- what would happen if you never cleaned your home? Some of you say, I know what would happen, right? <laughs> I do, because I lived in a house like that in college. I had four other male roommates, and we really never cleaned the house. It just got worse and worse and worse. Dishes piled in the sink and we lied to ourselves saying they need to soak for several days, right? (laughs) That's nobody's bathing strategy, by the way. You know, I've got to soak for a couple of days before I clean myself. But we do that with our homes, with our dishes. We didn't clean the floors, the carpets, and it just got worse and worse to the point, frankly, where things just really needed to be replaced rather than cleaned. The natural state of our world after the fall is chaos and sin. And that's where these people are. Every thought of their heart is always evil, continually. You'll see this cycle over and over again throughout the Bible. That left to our own devices, people will always drift towards sin and become corrupt. And so these people have gotten to their lowest point. Now, most of us have good moments and bad moments, good days, bad days, right? Maybe you bring a meal to a friend, but on the way home, you cuss out another driver, right? So you are a very mixed bag, as am I. But these men and women have gotten to a place where there's, there's really nothing good that can be said about them. And it's at that point, then, that we see how sin will always lead to death. Sin will always lead to death. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. What does it mean that God is sorry that he made them? Did God make a mistake when he created mankind? Does he go, oops, I shouldn't have done that. That's not what's going on. The reason I know that is because Genesis 1, over and over and over again, God says it is good. Everything he creates, it is good, it is good. Seven times in chapter 1, he says it is good. And he caps it all off with a, it is very good. So his creation is good. When it says God is sorry, the idea in the Hebrew is that he is in emotional pain and anguish and sadness. He looks at them and he says, I'm sorry, about what they're doing to the world that I made. They're destroying it and they're killing each other. Think about it this way. Some of you uh, probably got a lot of candy this past week, either at the country fair or maybe you took your kids trick-or-treating. And so uh, in our house right now, there are just buckets of candy everywhere. It'll take us well past Valentine's Day to eat it. Now imagine that you go home and you take one large chocolate bar out of those buckets and you set it in front of your kids. Maybe there's three or four of them and you say, okay, you guys share this chocolate bar, split it up, divvy it up amongst yourselves and eat it. Here is a gift from me to you. And what's likely to happen? They will fight, right? My piece is smaller than his piece. She didn't break it evenly. He mashed that candy bar piece. I want the whole candy bar. And they'll begin to fight. Now, is the candy bar evil? You might think so. You might be tempted to write Hershey, Pennsylvania. Why are you making these things? 
It's not the candy bar that's evil, is it? It's the children. I hate to say it. (laughs) First service, somebody goes, it's the kids, right? And yelled it out. Some poor mom. Okay. All the candy bar does is what? It highlights the selfishness that's already there. And God looks down, and you may say at that moment, you may say, I really, I wish I hadn't given you that. God looks down at the earth he's created that was good and beautiful and sees how mankind is destroying it. And he says, I'm going to step in and I'm going to judge. I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to blot them out with a flood. Because judgment is a necessity. It may seem extreme, but the reality is that their sin was killing them. These people were going to die one way or the other. Either they were going to kill each other off and in the process ruin the world, or God was going to step in and judge. And as you look throughout the Bible, what you see is because of his holiness, God always must judge sin. He has to judge it. He can't allow it to go unpunished because he is a holy God and this is his world. Now, ultimately, we see for the Christian that that judgment falls on Jesus Christ. So it seems harsh that he has to judge, but the reality is sin was going to kill them. And so he judges as an opportunity, ultimately, to recreate. That's what we're going to see. He says, I'm going to flood the whole earth. There's been a lot of debate about whether the flood literally covered the entire globe, whether you had water up to, you know, 17 to 20,000 feet covering the whole globe, or whether the flood was more regional and it simply uh, wiped out life in this one particular area. There are a lot of great resources. There are evangelical Christians on both sides of this issue. But wherever you land, and I can give you some good resources, and we'll talk about this in the podcast this week, it is very clear from the Scripture that all of human life is blotted out. All of life is blotted out. Now, again, as Brian talked about a few weeks ago, earth here in the Hebrew can mean land. And so some have argued maybe this was a flood that wiped out all of human life and it was all centered in this one region. Others say, now it needs to be a global flood that covers the whole globe. And those are good discussions to have and we need to have those discussions. Ultimately, though, the point of the passage is this, that the violence and the sin of mankind has gotten to a place where God has to wipe out humanity. This is a judgment on mankind because of how he is destroying what God has made. And he says, I'll blot him out. Sin is always that destructive. And you may read this passage and say, I'm not that bad, right? Not every thought of my heart is always bad continually all the time. But remember, this is at the end of hundreds of years of God waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Peter says God waited and waited, 1 Peter 3.20. He kept waiting patiently in the days of Noah. And yet they didn't repent. And in fact, they got worse. And it all began in their hearts and minds. James chapter 4 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The sin starts here. You say, I'm not that bad, but the sin in my heart leads to sin in my actions. Sin in my actions leads to a pattern of sin in my family, in my society, in my world. And this is what happens when sin runs out of control. 
it leads to all of this death. That's where we're headed, apart from the intervention of God. So we are at a dark place in the history of the world. And yet, as we walk through this narrative, what we see is that even in the midst of this judgment, where God's going to wipe out all of the life on earth through a flood, God is gracious. Even in the midst of this judgment, God is gracious. Look again at chapter 6, verse 8. You can miss verse 8 if you were reading quickly. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor before the Lord. Uh, That word favor in the original language is the word hain, which really means grace. Before we have any word of how good Noah is or bad Noah is, what happens? Noah found favor. God bestowed upon Noah grace because he loved him. Even in the midst of this judgment, God goes toward Noah and he says, you have found favor with me. And I don't think it is that Noah was so good that God says, Noah, you've earned a spot on this ark. In fact, it says, Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. First of all, that only happens after God's favor on Noah. And secondly, he's really only blameless relative to the terrible, terrible, terrible people around him. Noah is no perfect hero, and you find that out in chapter 9. But Noah finds favor in the midst of this destruction. And he says, Noah, I am going to save you so you can be a vessel of redemption for the whole human race. To provide the opportunity for life to begin again. One of my seminary professors, uh, Howard Hendricks, who is a legendary professor, passed away earlier this year. Uh, He used to tell a story about his early life. He grew up in the 1920s and 30s, and his parents divorced when he was young, which was not, of course, as common in that day as it is in our own. And he grew up feeling separate from his peers, feeling alone. He had trouble at school, and he said, I was a troublemaker. And by the time he said I hit fourth or fifth grade, all the teachers knew that I was a problem. And I would come through their class and I would make trouble and they would say, Howie Hendricks is so bad. And he said, I did my best to live up to that. And he said, I hit sixth grade and this teacher, Miss No, looked at me. First day of class, she said, oh, Howie Hendricks, I've heard all about you. And he said, I thought, here we go again. And then she looked at him and said, but I don't believe a word of it. He said, at that moment, it was a transformative moment in my life because... It was the first time someone told me they believed in me. And whether he consciously understood this as a sixth grader or not, he decided to make his life about believing in those who wanted to pursue the Lord. That's what it means to find favor. It wasn't because he was good. It was because somebody expressed grace to him. And it transformed the direction of his life. And we see that with Noah. He finds favor before God. And it changes the trajectory of Noah's life. And he walks with God. And now God provides him with the character and the endurance and the resources that he needs to do what ends up being a very, very difficult task. God says, Noah, I'm going to make you the vessel of redemption for the whole human race. And the way I want you to do that, Noah, is I want you to build an ark. Now, you've read this passage probably a hundred times. You've heard it as a kid. Uh, But what are we talking about? One ark, really, it's kind of like a big box, if you think about it that way. If you remember the Ark of the Covenant, people get confused between the Noah's Ark and the Ark of the Covenant. Both mean box. All right, Ark of the Covenant, small. Noah's Ark, very, very big. 
Noah's Ark is 300 cubits long. It is 30 cubits tall and 50 cubits wide. It's three stories high. Just to give you an idea of how big this is, uh, we had our graphic designer, Emily, take a picture of the dimensions of Noah's Ark and superimpose it upon Kyle Field. Just so you can see. So here's Kyle Field, about 216 meters, Noah's Ark, about 158 meters. It would take up the entire field and stretch well into the stands. It's almost the whole stadium. This is a huge boat. Now, it's not as big as like a princess cruise liner is today, but for the ancient world, this is huge. And God says, Noah, I want you to build this thing out of gopher wood, and I want you to fill it with two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal. You need food, you need water, your family's going to go in there, they need food, they need water for the better part of a year. This would have taken Noah years to accomplish. And all of it happens in the desert. Noah is building an enormous boat in the desert because God told him to. That's a ridiculous command, if you really think about it. Even today, we don't build cruise ships in Indiana and try to ship them to Florida, right? They build them right next to the water on a dock that they then either flood or roll the thing straight into the water. You can't take a boat like this and drag it to the ocean. It's too big. And yet Noah builds it, and as he's building it, he has to exercise faith that the rain is going to come. And I can only imagine, although the text doesn't tell us, I can only imagine that his neighbors, his other relatives, his friends walked by and thought, what in the world are you up to? And they had opportunity to hear the warning from Noah's lips, the world is going to flood. And yet the only ones who apparently avail themselves of God's grace are Noah and his family. Hebrews 11.7 says, by faith Noah, being warned by God, about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah finds favor with God and now God gives him the strength to do this unbelievable task to redeem human and animal life for the sake of his name. And what I love about this passage, chapter 7 now tells us about the flood, which we don't have time to read the whole chapter this morning. But the rain comes down and down and down. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. All right, that's more than a few inches of rain, right? That is thousands of feet probably of rain. It just keeps raining and raining and raining. And yet as the rain comes down, what goes up? Well, the water goes up certainly, but what else? The ark comes up on the water. And even in the midst of this judgment, as the water comes down, the ark comes up, and it is a standing symbol of the grace of God. That God in his mercy will not let humanity perish once and for all. And you can't miss the parallel between the ark that God provides for Noah and the salvation he provides for you and me in Jesus Christ. Peter talks about it. He says, corresponding to this ark, baptism. We celebrated baptism this morning. Baptism now saves you. And he says, not a removal of dirt from the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience. The idea is it's not the water of baptism that saves you. Instead, it is the spirit identifying you with Jesus Christ. So just as Noah and his family get on that ark and they are saved from destruction, you and I identify with Jesus Christ. We get on his boat and he saves us from eternal death. Because judgment is coming on sin. 
But if you know Jesus Christ, that judgment falls on him, on the perfect son of God, who died in our place and rose again to defeat death and sin. Maybe that you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. The thing to know is that judgment is coming as surely as we stand here. There is a day, Peter goes on to tell us that there is a day when the earth will be burned up and a new earth will emerge. And those who have identified and placed their faith in Jesus will rejoice with him forever on a restored earth. And so the story of Noah reminds us that even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of judgment, God will always provide redemption and salvation. Not only will he provide a way, but after that destruction, God restores. God rebuilds. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh never again shall be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So at the end of the flood, they're in the ark for nearly a year. They finally come out. Chapter one or chapter nine, verse one. What does God do? God takes Noah and his family and he says this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That should sound familiar if you've been following Genesis up to this point. That's exactly what God tells Adam and Eve at the very beginning. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's as if God has pressed a big reset button on the world. And he says, now's your chance to start all over. Uh, reset is my favorite technological solution, by the way. If my computer starts to act up, what do I do? Turn it off, back on. Shannon calls me and says, our wireless internet is not working today. I say, did you turn it off and back on? If she says, yes, I tried that. I say, now you need to call someone. I'm out of my, <laughs> out of my depth, right? Sometimes I think we wish we had a reset button in our life. If you say something stupid, you could go, please reset that. Start it over. You buy the wrong car. 
Or if you're sitting even at a restaurant and you notice my friend ordered better than I did. His food looks better. I wish I could take that back. Reset that order. What God does here in Genesis 9 is he starts over. And he gives the same command with a few new parameters, right? Now, if you kill somebody, your life is forfeit. That stems this rising tide of violence that had led us to the point we were at in Genesis 6-5. And then there's a new promise. It says, I'm going to make a covenant that never again will I destroy the world this way. I'm not going to flood it out and wipe out everything that I've created. And the sign of that is a rainbow in the sky. That every time you look up after it rains, you see this rainbow and it's the reminder that the rain is over, the sun comes out and it shines upon this rainbow to say, I won't do that again because I love my people. And so every time you see that rainbow, you remember God is faithful to his promise to save. We got to go to Colorado as a family this past summer and one of the first days that we were there there was a huge rainstorm it just rained and it rained and it rained and as the rain ended uh, this is what we saw up over the mountains and I had to take a picture we actually stopped the car and took a picture and we talked with the kids about this this is a sign that God is faithful that he loves you there's nothing magical about it It's that God says, look, when you see this, you remember, I'm not going to do that again. He will always provide a way of salvation. And so with all of those kids' toys, the Noah's Ark and the nursery with the rainbows and the animals, and I think all of that is great. If your kids play with it, just periodically remind them. You see this rainbow here? You know what this is? This is a reminder of God's faithfulness to his promises. This is a reminder that God saves. You look at that ark. You know what that ark was? That was God's salvation for Noah and his family. And in the same way, God provides salvation for you and me through Jesus Christ to everyone who identifies with him through faith. I mentioned a moment ago, by the way, the the earth will be one day destroyed again and remade. Revelation chapter 21 talks about its remaking. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. God will never destroy the earth with a flood again. But Peter tells us one day it's going to burn up and God will recreate it. And the next time, the sign of his faithfulness will not be a rainbow in the sky, but it will be the presence of God dwelling among mankind forever and ever and ever. And the spirit of God in your heart, if you believe in Jesus, Ephesians tells us that's a down payment of the inheritance you're going to receive of the salvation that God has promised to those who trust him. You can take it to the bank. So we look at the rainbow and we remember 
God's salvation, God's love. And yes, the fact that God has to judge sin, but in Jesus, that judgment has fallen on him and not on me. So as we wrap up, a few applications to consider. First, trust in God's goodness. All the way through Genesis, we've talked about how sin stems from a belief that God is not good. So I look around and I say, God doesn't punish sin or God doesn't want the best for me or God doesn't love me or God will not act in the way that I want. But as we look at Genesis 6 through 9, we see, no, God does judge sin. God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. But even uh, beyond that, in the midst of judgment, God saves and he loves his people. He loves his world and he loves you. God is good. And he's always reaching out to you to say, I want you to know me deeply. I want you to experience the life that goes beyond anything that your sin would promise or tempt you toward. So you trust God's goodness, trust God's timing. That we are still in this in-between time. And we're awaiting the day in which God will judge sin and restore all things to the way they were meant to be forever. Remember, God is not waiting because he's slow or he forgot it was daylight savings time or whatever, right? God is waiting because he's patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. And so day after day after day, he extends the grace of Jesus Christ. And he calls you and me then to be representatives of that grace. When God called Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, that was a call again to say, I want you to represent me here on this earth, my character. You've just come through a terrible judgment and destruction. You've seen my grace. Now represent that. Now, they didn't do it perfectly. And you find that out at the end of chapter 9 again, that uh, Noah and his family descend again into sin and darkness, as do their descendants. Sin comes back again. But God keeps extending grace. And although we wait for the perfection of the world through his power, we can trust him. In his time, everything good will happen. So I don't have to worry about my future can trust his timing, and then lastly, I can trust his power. There is no situation, there is no life, there is no sin that is too big for God to restore. If God could restore the world after a cataclysmic flood, he can restore your future, your marriage, your life, your walk with him. He lives to redeem because he loves you and he loves me. And he's big enough to do it. And so we can trust God's power even in those moments where we question whether hope is lost. You trust God's goodness, trust God's timing, trust God's power, and remember that he constantly seeks, even in the midst of sin's destruction and devastation, to save. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that in your word we see your character so clearly displayed. Through the power of your spirit that lives in us, we know that we are empowered to represent you, even though we're so sinful. And we have a promise of eternal life in Jesus. I pray that we would not forget that, that every time we see a representation of Noah's Ark, every time we see the rainbow in the sky, we'd remember who you are, that you're faithful to your promises, truthful to your word, And you'll make us whole and new and perfect in your time. 
And so we wait with eager anticipation and desire to walk with you in the meanwhile. Father, we love you. We pray be with us this week that we might do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful week. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brian Fisher here with Matt Morton. Today we're talking about the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 and a particular issue related to the flood. Was it global or was it local? Matt, to set the stage for this conversation, I want to read a few verses from Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 19. It says, The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all those in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. It has been discussed and debated extensively whether the flood was over the entire earth or whether it was just localized. Now, from a theological perspective, it's clear that uh, at the very least, uh, all of humanity was wiped out in this judgment. So if humanity had not spread beyond a, a local region, probably in uh, this fertile crescent region, then the flood could have just been local and accomplished that purpose of, of judging all of mankind. But it's also been observed that the Hebrew word Eretz can refer to the land, and in the Pentateuch, particularly the promised land area, it can also refer to the entire earth. So would you discuss with us a little bit the, the uh, interpretive options for local or global flood? Sure. And, and you're right. Traditionally, most interpreters have assumed in the history of the church and the history of Jewish interpretation that this was global. It covered the whole earth. Uh, there are some challenges, particularly that have arisen in, say, the past 100 years or so, with the global flood perspective. And most of those challenges relate to uh, the science of a worldwide flood like what seems to be described at face value in Genesis 6 through 9. Um, some of the problems you run into, uh, for example, are the water itself. If you have water that rises to about 5,000 meters across the surface of the earth, so we're talking about fifteen to 20,000 feet across the surface of the earth, uh, where did all the water come from and where did it go? Uh, at present, there's not that much water in the oceans or in the clouds. And so uh, there have been some solutions that people have proposed. One could be that there was a large canopy filled with water that covered the entire earth that was emptied out at that time. Uh, but again, one of the challenges you have with that is uh, that would increase the temperature of the earth significantly to a point where it might not be habitable. Uh, it would change the oxygenation levels of the earth where there might not be enough oxygen in the atmosphere for people to breathe. And so some of those challenges have risen. Some people will suggest, well, perhaps the continents actually sank and rose again. Uh, but again, you struggle with issues of, you know, our current rates of continental movement don't seem to be that fast. And so, uh, there are some 
from the perspective of geologists in particular, some challenges with a global flood. Um, and I lay these out not to say that a global flood didn't happen, but just to say these are questions that have been that have to be answered. Another one relates to the animals on the ark. Uh, if we look at our current animal species in the world, assuming we're talking about land animals, there's one and a half to two million species that we're aware of. Um, even if you assume that Noah only put what we call animals of the first kind. So he puts a wolf instead of every species of dog. You don't have a poodle and a collie and, you know, every species of dog. If the flood is only a few thousand years ago, then you have to deal with rates, fast rates of evolution in the last few thousand years to create now all of the different species that we do see. And so there are some problems with a global flood. Now, certainly the text itself at face value, again, seems to imply that the flood covers the earth. And yet, as you mentioned, Brian, there's a couple of issues to keep in mind. Uh, for example, the word Eretz that is often translated earth here, many places, if not most places in the Old Testament, it actually refers to the land of Israel and the surrounding environment. So Genesis 12 is a great example. God tells Abraham, leave your land and go to the land I will show you. That's the same word, Eretz. Now, he's obviously not asking Abraham to mm. go to Mars, right? right? He's right, not asking right. him to go to another planet. So when, when it says that the land is flooded, we have that option. Uh, you do have a, a couple of other problems. Uh, here in the passage you just read, uh, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher. Now, if, if that means it was 15 cubits higher than the highest mountains in the known world, certainly that has to necessitate a global flood. Right. But another option is that the water prevails 15 cubits higher from its starting point, and the mountains are covered from the perspective of Noah, who is in the ark, not to mention that their view also of mountains in the region could be that they're looking at the mountains in their land and the far-off mountains that were higher uh, the ranges that are much, much higher, 17,000, 18,000 feet, aren't included in the descriptions. In other words, right. it could be that the author, that Moses, as he's writing, is simply looking at the perspective of the land itself. Right. It seems that that's a possibility if you read in chapter 8, verse 5, it says, The water decreased steadily until the tenth, of the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So, chapter 8, verse 5, the tops of the mountains are visible but then in chapter 8, verse 9, it says, The dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him in the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth, that is all Ha-Eretz. So right. the tops of the mountains are visible, but the entire earth is covered. So it, it appears in that section, at least, that what Moses is saying is the whole land is covered, but in the distance he could begin to see the tops of the mountains. Right. And... One of the things that's important to keep in mind, even in this whole discussion, is that the Hebrew language doesn't always use words like all and whole in the same way that we do or tend to do. So when we say all the earth, we think everything everywhere. When we say all the animals, we're thinking all the ones in the world. But you have illustrations like Deuteronomy 2.25, where God says, I will put the fear of Israel uh, in all of the nations under heaven. Now, obviously, at this point, we're looking primarily at those nations, really, that are surrounding Israel, the Canaanite nations, maybe the Egyptians. We're probably not talking about the Native Americans who had never heard of Israel at that point. So 
language like that can be used in an extensive way, really to indicate a more localized phenomenon. And that's not unusual in the Old Testament at all. Um, Now, on the side of the global flood, there are a couple of issues that need to be dealt with. You know, Peter mentions the flood in 2 Peter chapter 3, and in connection with the flood, he says, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so you could argue that Peter believed in a global flood, that he's saying, just as the world was destroyed with fire, one day God will burn up the world. Um, You're not necessarily forced into that interpretation of Genesis if you believe that, you know, really Peter is painting with broad strokes here, that he's saying just as God destroyed humanity, just as God ended humanity, he also will one day destroy the earth again. Right, right. And in 2 Peter 3, verse 6, we use vocabulary a little bit differently than the Hebrews did or the Greeks did. Verse 6 says, through these things, the world existing at that time, and it is the word cosmos, which can mean the universe, mm-hmm, right? or it can mean the earth, or it can mean the inhabited area here, or it can refer to uh, humanity, you know, the, that is humanity dwelling on the earth who are in rebellion against God. Right. And that that's typically the way that John uses it. Right. And so all of these things actually bring up a great point that when we're talking about global or local flood, it's important to note that this is a debate that happens even amongst those who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And it is possible to hold to the inerrancy of Scripture and yet interpret it a little bit differently on issues like this. And so the questions here really are not ones of whether the Bible is true, it is a legitimate uh, attempt to go, what exactly is the most reasonable understanding of this passage? And so if there was a global flood, there's there's no problem even with saying, you know, the text says there's a global flood, and so we can trust that God can miraculously do anything he wants. God could put all of that water on the earth, and he could take all of that water away, and we don't even have to have scientific evidence that it happened for it to be true, if we believe in a God that is that powerful. Um, On the other hand, from the regional or local flood perspective, it's not outside the boundaries of the text as we might understand it to say it could be regional. But remember, when you're talking from the perspective of Moses writing the book of Genesis, his world is contained around that fertile crescent and near the Mediterranean basin. And so when he talks about all of life being flooded, it's not necessary to assume that he means it in the way that we might mean it from our modern perspective, that his perspective of the world could have been very different from ours, and that's an acceptable interpretation. Matt, thanks so much. As you wrap us up, remind us again that the flood is dramatic, that that God, uh, whether it's local or global, he wiped out almost all of humanity except for one family. Why did he do it? Right. That's the key to the whole passage is ultimately God chooses to judge his creation because they are destroying everything he's made. Because sin has gotten to a place where everything they think, everything they do is always evil, it tells us in Genesis 6. And so God reaches a place where judgment is the necessary course of action so that he can start again 
and work toward uh, humanity fulfilling his purposes on the earth. And so that's the primary issue in this passage, regardless of whether you think global or local flood, is uh, God is judging humanity and all of humanity. But in the midst of that, we see the grace of God with the, the ark of Noah rising above the floodwater so God can start again. Right. So God in, in judging is actually exercising grace because he is rescuing humanity from itself. Absolutely. Matt, thanks. Appreciate your time. For more information and more resources, you can get on our website at grace-bible.org. 